The Fanny Mechanic Show with Dr. Tash, where we dive in, go deep, and open up about women's health. Hello, and welcome everyone to this week's episode of The Fanny Mechanic Show. I am your host, Dr. Natasha Andriatis, aka Dr. Tash, and this episode is proudly brought to you by City Fertility, global leaders in fertility and IVF. This week, we dive into the topic of artificial intelligence, AI in medicine. We go deep with Evidently CEO, Greg Miner. Greg opens up about how software companies such as his can help doctors like myself help their patients. I ask Greg, how is it that health informatics can assist in decisions based on patient data? What exactly is AI? How has it changed contributed to society everyday living? How has it changed contributed to healthcare? Should all doctors be familiar with AI? How can it help us help our patients? Should doctors be excited by AI? I know I am. Should their patients be excited too? Any room for skepticism here? How can doctors keep up with AI developments and tech trends? How about robots? Should we be excited by robots or skeptical, scared of them? What does Greg see in the future of AI that excites him? I was super pleased to see that the current November 2020 edition of Fertility and Sterility, a premier journal, features articles on the topic of artificial intelligence in medicine. I thought I'd read you an excerpt from an article, uh, the first article, in fact, of that journal. It is titled, Artificial Intelligence in Reproductive Medicine, A Fleeting Concept or the Wave of the Future. The article written by Zev Rosenworks, MD. Artificial intelligence is embodiment of a partnership between man and machine. Here he quotes Ginny Romity, the CEO of IBM. At its core, the objective of AI is to enable computers to learn to execute functions that are usually ascribed to human intelligence. As the world has become more and more reliant on computers, it is not surprising that medicine has embraced the computer age with enthusiasm and anticipation. This is also true in the field of reproductive medicine, where we are witnessing increasing utility and exciting applications of digital technologies and AI. Although applications of AI in the embryology laboratory have gained the most traction, it is likely that its use will broaden to other areas of reproductive medicine as well. It is anticipated that AI-guided approaches will be more objective, more accurate, more rapid, resulting in greater precision, standardization, and automization in our field. Likewise, the use of AI for sperm selection, sperm cell identification in microsurgical testicular samples, and generally for analyzing multiple factors affecting male infertility. Future AI tools for predicting miscarriages, assessing female ovarian reserve, as well as anatomic assessment of antral follicle counts and uterine anatomy are also described in this journal. Also mentioned are time-lapse photography and AI image analysis for selecting the best embryo. Both with static embryo images and morphokinetic embryo developmental hallmarks as critical machine learning tools for embryo selection. Most intriguing is the description of AI used for predicting aneuploidy that is abnormal chromosome makeup based on embryo image analysis. So, friends, head over to this month's November's Fertility Sterility Journal if you are keen to learn more. Stay tuned because next week I'll be bringing you an episode with scientist Sarah Delati. And Sarah talks a lot more about time-lapse imaging of embryos in the IVF lab. But now, getting back to this week's guest, Greg Miner. 
Greg Miner is a seasoned software executive having spent over 20 years developing and launching market-leading technologies. Greg began his career as a product manager for IBM WebSphere in the 90s as a member of the team responsible for the development and launch of the industry's first web application platform. Since then, he has held executive responsibility for divisions within large global technology companies. At Microsoft, Greg was the CFO for the company's enterprise and services business across Australia and Asia Pacific. At Apple, Greg led strategy and planning for a $13 billion business across Asia Pacific and Australia. Since then, he has led private and publicly listed software companies, including Alcidian, a publicly listed clinical decision support company. Greg has since co-founded Evidently, where he leads the company as CEO. I hope you enjoy our tech chat. Greg Miner, thank you for joining me on the Fanny Mechanic Show. Oh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm always intrigued by American accents, and but sometimes I get confused between American and Canadian accents. So, are you from the US or the or Canada? No, I'm from the US. I'm okay. from the US. I moved to Australia in early January 2003, so I've been here for a while. Oh, okay. And whereabouts in the US? Um, all over the place, but I call Connecticut right outside of New York City home. Oh, so is that where you were born and raised? No. Well, I was I was born in a small town um, called Kalamazoo, Michigan, which is oh, kind of in the middle of the country. Michigan. I always think yeah. of Madonna when I think of Michigan. Yeah, yeah, she's from Detroit. That's a couple yeah. hours away from where I live. Um, but yeah, moved around a bit uh, as a kid following kind of my dad's job and um, ended up in Connecticut and while well, he was working in New York City. And what was your dad doing? Uh, he's um, a scientist. All right. So he he kind of studies um, essentially kind of environmental science. So uh, carbon, he, he's been studying carbon and carbon emissions and carbon capture uh, oh, for wow. the last many, many years. Yeah, it got to be quite popular uh, 10 or 15 years ago. So he's still alive? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's kind of he retired now and awesome. um, does, a bit of, does a bit of work here and there consulting, but he's kind of a – I don't know what he is. He's a fellow emeritus now, so he still does research uh, as and when he is interested in it. And, and where did he retire to? Uh, they live now, they live in um, an area called uh, Research Triangle Park in North Carolina. So it's kind of near Duke University right? and University of North Carolina. Okay. Is that where he did some of his work? Mm, yeah. He, well, he did it there. He did a fair bit there. He did a bit when he was in New York. It was all with the same organization. Okay. Um, yeah. So your dad is a scientist. How about your mom? Uh, my mom's a nurse. Um, oh. So she was uh, in hospital uh, when I was a kid and then became a public health nurse later on in life. So, and she's now retired as well. So in, in growing up, were you inspired by your parents to end up where you are now in some way? Yeah, I think so. I think um, coming out of university, this whole internet thing was kind of new and interesting. Um, and I had a belief that uh, accessibility of knowledge and kind of the promise that the internet held would change the world dramatically and would uh, make the world a better place. Um, so I wanted to get involved in that. Uh, yeah, and kind of started, um, ended up started working at IBM uh, in their headquarters back in the late 90s. So when you finished high school is that called college in america is that right yeah 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 i went to university here that's right yeah. okay 
And then what did you do at uni? Um, I did actually medical anthropology. Oh. So uh, study of unique and different me- medical systems other than allopathy. Wow. Uh, and then ended up doing a degree, a practical degree. I was thinking about getting a PhD in that, but um, decided not to. I was thinking about maybe transferring that into epidemiology because um, I had the kind of a thing for math and numbers. And then this kind of quantitative finance degree um, had some advanced stats and I quite liked it. So threw myself into that and somehow or another ended up in technology from there. I don't quite know how, but that's how it happened. And when was your first, where was your first tech job? IBM. Okay. So what year was that? 19, was it 97, 98, 97, I think, 97, 98. And what were you doing there? Um, I did a lot of shaping some of those products. Wow, you know when when you when you talk like this, I I, I it's otherworldly to me because I really I don't understand your world at all. So it's all very kind of <laughs> uh, sexy, elusive, very mysterious, very curious. So if I ask you lots of silly questions, please forgive me. <laughs> no, that's all right. That's all right. I'm happy to happy to answer. So you were at IBM, and then you went from IBM to Microsoft. Uh, yeah, well, kind of. There was an intervening step. I kind of did uh, a master's degree. I moved here to do that. Um, and worked for another reasonably large technology company, uh, actually quite large, for a few years. Um, and then the opportunity came to join Microsoft, uh, and I did that. I spent quite a bit of time at Microsoft. And did you? Did you? Were you in downtown Seattle, where headquarters are? No, I was. That was here. That was here. I, I made a lot of trips to Seattle, but that was here. Oh, in okay. And what um, made you move to Australia? Because Australians aren't—we're not really techies, are we? Compared to. America. What made you go from America, which is all about tech, to Australia that kind of, I feel, always kind of lags behind a little bit? Yeah, I mean, and I found that when I got here. So I, I wanted to do my master's degree and I wanted, I knew I was going to stay in technology. Um, so I wanted a kind of a life experience at the same time. And I traveled a bit outside of the United States, um, but wanted to kind of immerse myself somewhere a bit different. Um, but I didn't want to need to learn a new language. So uh, <laughs> that, that was, you know, to, to kind of study in a foreign language without learning it, I figured that probably wasn't a, a recipe for success. So Europe was so, kind of out of the equation, sort of. Uh, I, I looked I looked in a uh, school in France, and I looked at one in Spain and ultimately decided here. Mm. Um, and, or, and I guess well, a couple in the UK as well. Uh, because I figured I'd always get to France, uh, Spain, and the UK, but I, you know, the odds of me actually uh, coming and spending and living in Australia were probably quite slim. And the plan was to end up, you know, leaving when I was done. But I uh, met my my partner and ended up staying. And welcome to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So then you worked for Microsoft in Australia. That's right. Yeah. And then you went from Microsoft to where else? Uh, I was at Apple for a while. And then I kind of decided that um, in those big technology companies, all paths lead ultimately lead back to the United States Mm. Uh, and kind of, you know, had young children and wasn't, you know, eager to move and thought that Australia and Sydney were probably one of the best places I could imagine to raise kids. And I decided to uh, stay here and jumped into the world of startups and kind of scaling some new technology businesses. And by that time, 
the kind of technology world had uh, matured here to the point where there was a lot of really interesting things happening. And so, yeah, it was a great time to do it. So you co-founded a company called Evidently. Um, yeah, that's right. Where, what's the genesis of that word, evidently? I mean, evidence somewhere? Yeah, evidence. And, it's, a, mm. it, it's about creating medical evidence. So um, the genesis is we want to make medical research um, several hundred times faster than it is today and several hundred times cheaper. Uh, and that's really what we've built. Yes, please. So yeah. I stole a little quote from your website. And it says, evidently is a software company that empowers, and I love that word, doctors, nurses, researchers, and healthcare managers to quickly and accurately mine knowledge from real-world patient data. So how does your company do this? How does evidently do this? Well, so firstly, we're a, a spin-out of a research institute, um, the Australian Centre for Health, the Australian Institute of Health Innovation and the Australian Centre for Health Informatics. And health informatics is kind of the data that underpins uh, medicine. Um, so what we've done is we've built, uh, well, I should say the company is based on about 15 years of, of research. And through that time, uh, the team built uh, a bunch of artificial intelligence that allows people to understand what's happening inside of clinical data very, very quickly. So can you explain to me and the listeners, health informatics, you mentioned briefly what it was, but can you go deeper into that? What is it exactly? Sure. Um, health informatics is kind of the technology that underpins our healthcare today. It's built on informatics and it's how we classify all of the things that happen in medicine. Um, so and that classification gets digitized in data in some way, shape, or form. And it's the use of, of kind of the mathematics behind medicine uh, and applying them in new ways. So can we talk about a practical example of this? Yeah, um, sure. I don't know. I'm just trying to think of something practical that I use as a fertility practitioner. Uh, sperm analysis. So I know that apparently now – you can get this technology where people can, men can actually work out a semen count at home using some app on their phone. Um, and I think they just scan images of their self-collected sperm at home and then it comes up with all these little images and then computes them, put them all, puts them all together and says, your sperm count is this. Um, is that that involve does that involve health informatics? Does that involve? I mean, it, I'm going to ask it, you about it, AI, but what does that all bring together? It certainly would underpinning that would be a lot of math and algorithms that are based on image analysis. Mm. So it's largely it's inferential. So it would look at look at numbers, look at relationship of numbers, and infer a sperm count. And that inference is based on some level, some type of informatics, and 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 data, right? Because that, what that really is, is it's an algorithm that was built on um, uh, observations of probably hundreds and thousands of sperm count samples. And it would look at an individual's, probably likely compare it to the intelligence it's gathered from hundreds of thousands of possibly millions of other, mm. and then tell you what yours is relative to this population it has. 
this this intelligence that's gleaned from all of these other other sperm samples. So I read somewhere that in devising AI, it all depends upon the quality of the data that you collect. That is absolutely correct. And so how do I know that my data is of good quality? Well, this is the problem. This is where our, our company comes in, to be honest with you. Um, uh, generally, you know that your data is of good quality if your AI provides predictions on your data set and someone else's data set consistently, or if it provides accurate predictions. Um, that's generally how you would find it. You would need to prove that it is it is good. Uh, and you do that by running it across a bunch of different data sets and then opening it for peer review and having a bunch of other uh, uh, kind of health informatics leaders and clinical leaders look at it and then they can agree that yes, it makes sense or no, it doesn't. So where did health informatics really take off? In what sector of medicine? I mean, I do read that radiology is an area where it's used quite extensively. But can you comment yeah. on that? Yeah, so I guess the, the field uh, was created by uh, a guy named uh, Ted Shortliff at Stanford in the 70s, where he began running algorithms over data to, I think, predict um, uh, some medication efficacy against antibiotics, or antibiotic efficacy, I believe. Uh, and it's kind of grown from there. Um, we actually, we actually know Ted. My co-founder works with him quite a bit. Uh, my co-founder is on a, uh, the editorial board of a academic journal that specializes in informatics. Um, and it, it's kind of grown from there. It's been nascent uh, up until the last probably six or seven years where it's really taken off um, because there's been enough clinical and medical data created and made available where now there's this possibility to apply uh, advanced mathematics to medicine in ways that have never before been possible. And so it, it's probably one of the more rapidly growing fields in medicine at the moment. So what I was impressed by when when I kind of first met you, you mentioned that you're watching someone doing an ultrasound and you weren't exactly confident in this person's doctor's uh, interpretation of what they were seeing. And you made a comment to me about um, something about machines can do this better. Uh, software programs can do this better. And it, it, it did kind of resonate with me. Um, in 10 years' time, will there be doctors still doing bedside ultrasounds and real-time interpreting what they see? Um, I, I think so. I, I think radiology, uh, which is kind of the people that interpret these ultrasounds, I think that field is going to get changed over the next 10 years. Um, what you're talking about is uh, a, a type of artificial intelligence called deep learning. And it's similar to the, the sperm analysis that you said. So what they've done is we've trained software to look at images and learn from them. And based on what your image looks like compared to a million other images and which ones are good, bad, otherwise, or et cetera, it can tell you with extraordinary accuracy what exactly is happening in a, in a picture mm. um, if you train the algorithm appropriately and give it enough data. So 
I think that uh, radiology is going to get changed. Now, will, will there be bedside, you know, interventions? Absolutely. Will there be doctors on wards, and you know, will we be seeing doctors? Absolutely. Will they have tools that give them uh, knowledge and information about uh, patients that uh, were previously not accessible? Absolutely. Uh, and that's where I think AI is really going to change medicine. And it's really in augmenting uh, a doctor's uh, knowledge and prompting a doctor to think about other things that may not be observable under under normal kind of clinical circumstances. Yeah, certainly in the world of fertility medicine, what I I'm kind of comforted by is when I see certain drug companies um, saying, okay, use our drug, but put it into an algorithm. So work out the dose according to this algorithm. And I kind of prefer that as a clinician as opposed to me just going, I think I'll give someone, you know, 100 of this or 200 of that. Um, what do you think on, about that comment? I think that's a that's a great use, and I think that's a, a it's a a, a good and, and fairly uh, standard form of dosing of medications dosing and medication management. Um, that that makes a great deal of sense, and that algorithm has been built on likely several clinical trials and a bunch of real world evidence that they've mined about how patients with certain characteristics handle or perform under uh, the dose of that drug. And you, you you fit those in, and it calculates the probability for the, the best dosage. So with evidently, um, if someone has a research idea, is it a matter of me going to you as a clinician and saying, hey, I have this idea, can you help me out with this research project? How does it um, work? Yeah, it, it could be. So what, what we do is we install our software uh, or we allow people to put data into our software that then allows them to understand it very, very quickly. So if a researcher has a bunch of data and it's kind of messy and it's not really complete and it would take them months and months and months of effort to get it in, in a way that they can start to interrogate it, uh, we'll do that in, in a day. Wow. <laughs> I can't imagine it's cheap software though. You don't have to comment on that now, but <laughs> uh, no, that's pretty well, no, amazing. I mean, it, it's uh, it, it isn't it it isn't it's at this point where we have a lightweight version uh, for for individual researchers, but most of the people we we speak to are large large healthcare institutions. So state, for instance, in Australia, a state a state based health system, or the federal government, or in the United States, you know, people like the FDA or the National Institute of Health. Uh, the NHS in the UK, uh, some large private uh, healthcare institutions around the world, and some and some of the life sciences companies that, you know, they they want to be able to build those algorithms you speak about, uh, but they, in order to do that, they need to to understand it's understand a bunch of, of patient data, and when I say a bunch, I mean billions and billions and billions of rows of data, um, which you can't just kind of look through on a spreadsheet. It's just just too much. One one question that often intrigues fertility specialists is uh, levels of progesterone, for example, and um, whether, uh, say, a, a, a measure of 30 more or less 
uh, affects pregnancy rates. Um, is it a matter of just asking a simple question like if if I have a patient who has a progesterone level of 40, is she more likely to get pregnant than a woman who has a progesterone of 29? Is it a matter of working with your software to come up with a really quick and easy answer to that if I had 50 patients? Yeah, what I would do is 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 you would look at likelihood. You'd look at you probably initially look back and say, okay, of these fifty patients, based on their progesterone levels, what are their likelihoods of of a pregnancy to fall in pregnancy and a pregnancy to term? Mm. And you would then kind of create um, uh, some probabilities based on that. Uh, so one one example that we can kind of a real world example that uh, we we talk about is one hospital we worked with uh, was sending uh, a lot of patients from hip and knee replacement surgery to intensive care and they didn't they didn't know why and they they didn't know if it was more than they should um, typically you'd want to spend about two percent of patients they thought it was more than that and they wouldn't they didn't know why and it would have taken them uh, between nine and 12 months of clinical time and work to begin to understand that uh, with us, it took two days, hmm. and uh, that was really kind of building the 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 question the right way, similar to the question that you asked. Uh, and you know, we were able to tell them, yes, you are sending too many patients to intensive care. Uh, it's because, by the way, the patients that you're sending that you treat with opioids post surgery are five times have a five times greater likelihood to end up in ICU. It looks like that's because it's affecting their breathing, mm-hmm. uh, but and we we looked at that you know based on age, surgical method, prosthetic used, um, uh, clinician time yeah, of day anesthetist, being, anesthetist <laughs> yeah. time, time time of day they're being treated. Mm. So it could be that you know people start getting decision fatigue and say oh to heck with it let's just give them opioids for pain, and it turns out that it wasn't you know it was just um, we decided to educate the clinicians. We needed to go back and say, for this certain type, this patient population um, that is having this type of procedure, please do not give them opioids. Use, you know, drug X, Y, and Z instead. And sure enough, ICU rates, uh, ICU admissions start to drop. Amazing. So, how did they know about you? Who was involved on that team, that research team, to approach <laughs> you? Someone pretty savvy, I could imagine. Well, we so they were kind of associated with the institute we came out of. Right. So they, they knew about us from inception. Okay. So are and, you and are you going about educating folks, doctors about what you do? Uh, we, we are. Yeah, we are. We're we're working mostly with the uh, people that understand informatics and understand a lot of the a lot of the challenges and complexities in real world patient data um, and getting getting it right so it's actually uh, usable uh so but we we are we are educating clinicians as well as as often as we can so you mentioned earlier uh artificial intelligence and my understanding of that is that it's quite a broad term for a lot of different things if we try and keep it again real world in your day-to-day greg um from the time that you get up until the time you go to sleep where, what has been your interaction with AI in your day? Oh, that's a good question. Um, 
So uh, the, the, the most common uses are uh, the internet and the things that you're interacting with. So when you go to Google and you start typing something and then it, it shows you, it should start showing you words. Does that, do you, are you familiar with that? When you yeah, go to Google totes, and start yep. typing and it starts showing you things, that's <laughs> yeah. AI. Which is, it's, it's yeah, very interesting because that, that means that the thing that you see up the top is worldwide what most people are looking at. Is that correct? Uh, it, could be, or it could be it, it could be that uh, people in this location mm. it could be that uh, you know people that search that time of day it could be that your prior searches people in that location that search that time of day that have said you know 20 other different things it could be any number of things mm. Google doesn't doesn't really talk much about their AI but it's it's some of the most advanced, they have some of the more advanced algorithms in the world in understanding human behavior mm. in relation to how technology works. So when, when, I, um, when I purchase something on um, the internet and suddenly mm-hmm. my, on my Facebook feed or Instagram there's an ad for what I purchased, that's AI? That is – that will be – yeah, that, that it, it depends. It, it probably is on Facebook. Uh, if it shows up on other ads, it's it's probably not. But on Facebook, it, it very well it mm. it could be depending on what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it but in some cases, yeah, that's that that could be a use of it as well. Um, another another form of AI could be uh, when you uh, uh, autocorrect or. Um, when you text, you know, when you autocorrect or type things. That's annoying auto text. So that's AI. <laughs> okay. Some of it is. Yeah. Some oh, of it okay. is. It can, it can predict what words you're going to use based on the sentence context and the words beforehand. That, that's fairly rudimentary. Mm. Uh, now it is. Now, five or six years ago, it was pretty advanced. But um, now it's fairly rudimentary. But that's that's kind of some, that's some very basic AI or, or machine learning. They're very similar. Mm-hmm. Well, not really, but they're. Yeah, same same kind of uh, same same kettle of fish, so to speak. So I was in a, a friend's car a few weeks ago, and the car self parked itself, like it just parked on its own without his hand on the steering wheel. Was that AI? Yeah, that that would that's that would be image recognition. That absolutely is. That's 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 AI and machine learning. And in the IVF embryology lab, when scientists are looking at embryos develop and grow. In um, things like embryoscopes, where you can actually see these these embryos develop in real time, is that's AI as well, isn't it? Well, there are uh, there are some companies that certainly build um, build software to be able to predict which are the the, the best embryos for implement, impl- mm. uh, implantation, and that is all that's AI and deep learning. It's called deep learning. It's mm. kind of a step before AI, but it's still very powerful software that learns. Okay. And do you think that one day there will be machines that will be smarter than us? Because I have also read that um, there was a book I read by this guy called Dr. Jordan Nguyen, who's a, he's a bio, biomedical engineer, Australian, and he's written a book called A Human's Guide to the Future. And he, mm-hmm. um, he talked about some interesting things in that book, including the fact that um, the world's best chess player was beat by a, a computer. Um, there's a Chinese game called Go, and um, the 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 world's best 
Go player was beat by a computer and Jeopardy. I think Jeopardy's an American game, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah, um, the same yeah. thing happened there. So, what are your um, what do you think of that? So let, let's be clear: AI is not going to take over the world. So there are certain the only way AI gets good. Well, it only gets good at a very, very specific task. Um, so, will it be? Is it smarter than us it, it, in a, in one certain area? It probably will be, uh, and it probably is today. You can park a car better than we can. It can uh, predict what you're going to type on the internet better or on Google better than we can, and it can figure out which embryos look good and which don't better than we can. Um, so, in certain areas, it will. Uh, there's never going to be a massive AI machine that can observe and get data to, you know, become uh, omniscient or, uh, and have kind of be all-knowing, all-seeing. There's just we don't even have all that data, and be, for in order for a machine to make sense of it, it needs to be it needs to look a certain way and do certain things. So uh, that I don't think is is realistic in our lifetimes and probably not our kids or our grandkids lifetimes. Uh, so, but in certain areas, yeah, there, there's going to be software, not really machines. I, I call it it's software that will be better than we are. And, and, but that, that's nothing new, right? There have been computers around forever that can do calculations faster than we mm. can. Uh, so Thank goodness for that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what do you see in the future of, of AI that excites you? Well, for me, it's all it's all about um, enabling people to do uh, greater things. Uh, so we've applied our AI to try to uh, unlock and unleash some of the latent brain power in the medical system that wants to solve a bunch of problems but just can't uh, because it's too hard and too costly. And I think you're going to start seeing a lot of applications of artificial intelligence that augment uh, people and they don't replace them, but it it uh, it, it helps. It, it it amplifies their impact, and that's what really excites me. Uh, in medicine, you can talk about uh, being able to predict uh, someone having a heart attack a few days beforehand, so get them to hospital, you know, much much earlier, and ensure they're not there forever. Uh, you can talk about um, you know trying to use artificial intelligence to predict which types of uh, cancer therapies are going to be more effective. Those types of things are, are really, really powerful and have an extraordinary impact uh, on both people's lives and on the health system. Um, the health system is fantastic, but it's not, it, it's, it's very wasteful um, because largely because things aren't, you know, the, the medicine is complicated and, you know, there's been a lot of people, a lot of scholars that say we don't actually need more hospitals and we probably don't need more physicians. We just need a more efficient system. And the only way to do that is with some way to supplement uh, the capacity we have. And we think we can do that with technology. And was it IBM that came up with Watson, the machine? Yeah. Yeah. So can you tell our listeners a bit about Watson? Because when I first heard about Watson, I was like, whoa, is this machine going to take my job? No, well, so Watson, uh, Watson is Watson is 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 fairly similar to what a lot of people have these days. Um, it's a it, it's a a bunch of software uh, that 
gets very good at a specific set of tasks. Um, so in healthcare, there's been a lot of uh, excitement about it. It hasn't delivered a lot yet. It's tried to do a bunch of cancer things. It hasn't been successful. Um, and really what Watson has turned into is uh, a way to collect a bunch of data. Um, now, in certain in certain areas, it's really really powerful, but in others, it's 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 still it's still learning, shall we say? That being said, you know, IBM has put a lot of money and resources into it, uh, and in certain areas, Watson's great, which is kind of things like telehealth and uh, you know predicting predicting what types of patients could be coming through uh, the door and, and that, that, those types of things. So, but it, I don't, uh, Watson is a long way away from from replacing doctors. Mm. Uh, technology is a long way away from replacing doctors. I mean, I personally am not scared of that. Um, I, I like the idea of, a, of, a, of an instrument or a tool that I can use to make better decisions as a clinician. Um, and especially in the world of research, again, uh, research is really difficult. I think good research to do is very it's very difficult to do as a full-time clinician. So when you're clinician-based like I am, I'm not research-based, I'm clinician-based. Um, often I do have ideas for research or I have questions I want to ask and I want them to get solved or answered for me. And and to hear that your company can um, potentially solve that problem for me though, or, or help me answer questions makes me feel excited actually. Yeah, and that, that's what, that, you know, if it, to, to really to – kind of uh, our mission statement is to kind of democratize research. And the way we do that, as I've said before, is kind of uh, unlocking some of the latent brain power in the health system that right now simply doesn't have the tools to to answer the questions they have. Um, and yeah, that's that's really what, what it is we do. And we do that with AI applied to data to allow them to get the answers they need a lot faster. So... Uh, should doctors overall be excited by by what AI can offer them, and, and should their patients be excited? Should we be worried in any way? Look, I don't. I don't think you should be worried. Now, there, I'm sure there are going to be things in the press where AI does something not right. Um, uh, that that is going to come. I think what you'll find is clinical AI will eventually become regulated, much like uh, drug review today. Uh, where if AI is going to try to replace doctors, it will or or make clinical decisions, um, be they diagnostic treatment, interventional or otherwise, you'll find that they need some form of regulation. Um, what you do need to be careful of is AI that's in a black box, where <clears throat> people come along and say, hey, I have this AI and it can do you know, X. It can... You know, tell you if a patient's deteriorating and tell you what medication to use all the time, 100% accurate, no matter what. Now, if they're not transparent about that, if they don't show the world their algorithm, if they don't have other clinicians try to replicate the results that they have on their data, then you're kind of putting your faith in a black box, um, which I feel, and I think a lot of people in the, in the medical field feel is not uh, healthy. So, uh, in you know, until that someone comes along with a bunch of literature backing up their claims uh, in terms of clinical interventions, then I'd be very cautious of that. So I suppose for me, it's a matter of um, bearing in mind that intuition and sometimes just that knowing as a clinician 
uh, is also very important. And I wouldn't want a machine or a software program to take uh, over that for me. I would just want it to kind of enhance what I can bring to the table. Um, but it sounds like a lot of AI and software programs uh, enable that, I think, so far. Um, yeah, and I, I think that's probably where they should stay. Mm. In, in, in some cases, or they should be applied to research. They should apply to finding new things that clinicians can use. So in terms of finding new things that clinicians use, often clinicians like myself, pre-COVID, will travel the world. We go to great conferences and we learn a lot about new things. Um, are there any conferences that uh, your area, uh, the medical AI software um, kind of hosts that we could visit? Do you guys host any any conferences? Can you recommend any? How do we keep sure. up with well, your developments? Well, any any conference that has to do with digital health. Mm-hmm. So there's one called HISA, H-I-S-A. There's the Australian Institute of Digital, digital Health. There's a large Australia-wide collaboration called the Australian Alliance for Artificial Intelligence and Healthcare. Mm. Um, and that's led by uh, a gentleman named Enrico Coera who's one of the world's leading uh, health informatics academics. Uh, he's based here in Australia. And, and that's a great, the great thing about health informatics is there are two or three of the best people in the world, hands down, that live here, uh, which is, is incredible for us. Uh, and so he leads this, this large collaboration with lots and lots of members and lots and lots of, uh, and that's both industry, academia, and and practice. Uh, so maybe hitting their website and having a look at them and mm. going, if, if you're interested in this, finding somewhere that Enrico is going to be speaking, he's, he's you know, the, the kind of de facto uh, in, in Australia, he's, you know, the, the, the de facto kind of leader in this space. And where's he originally from? Where are his roots? Uh, he's Australian. He he's now at Macquarie University. He was at UNSW previously. Ah, I went there. He's, That's a great a, university, a, I have to say. Yeah, he's a he's a medical doctor. All right. Uh, I, th- I think I don't know if he went to UNSW or Sydney Uni or something, but then did his PhD and yeah, he's he's been in informatics for decades and decades and decades, and he's well published. He's always showing up in uh, the BMJ, which is the British Medical Journal or JAMA. Uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association. Has you written any books? Yes, he's written a book called uh, A Guide to Health Informatics. Oh, wow. Which is probably one of the more widely used textbooks uh, to teach informatics to master's level students in the world. So does that mean if I open that book up, I'm just going to get a lot of maths equations and get lost? No, I think he's going to actually explain to you the foundations of it and how to kind of get your head around it. That's more of a foundational text. Sounds like a good book. <laughs> and my, my co actually my co-founder wrote a few chapters of that too. So oh, all right. I can, I cool. can plug us. <laughs> Amazing. So are there any later like um hot technology trends at the moment, Greg, or any interesting trends you wanted to share with us? I mean, I'm always particularly interested in the world of fertility, reproductive medicine, women's health. Anything that comes up? Uh, well, I think the big one that I'm aware of is is the use of AI and imaging. Uh, to 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 help those types of things, um, I think you know broadly tech trends. What you're going to start seeing is a lot of tools to help clinicians understand what's happening to their patients faster and make better and faster decisions. 
Um, I think that's that's going to be one of the big ones. Um, there's a lot of not very interesting or sexy trends about getting the foundations for digital health right. Um, but what I think you're going to find in the post-COVID world is a huge focus on uh, on both research and data, because uh, this is this is the problem that COVID caused the world. So our medical system is built on hundreds, ten, or tens, decades, hundreds of years of medical research, from the number of doctors we have to the number of beds we have to the number of wards, the number of hospitals, the drugs we use, the policies we use. It's everything. It's it's all very very regimented, and there are rules on how you do things. What COVID has articulated to the world is that when something big happens, our health system is unable to flex. It's unable to change some of the rules it operates on uh, because they're so they're so ingrained and they don't have the data or the intelligence to shift priorities or shift policies or shift standards based on these types of things. And that's at the most fundamental level. That's the problem COVID caused the world that we, we cannot change or shift or flex our medical system effectively enough to to handle these big pandemics. Um, and that's why we're seeing the economy shut down because people are worried about hospitals getting overwhelmed and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And as a result uh, of that, we are going to, I think, the global health systems and, and that will eventually trickle down to your local systems are going to focus on learning and building a learning health system that will uh, be able to learn in near real time about the environment it's in and adapt accordingly. Mm. And that's not in a machine doing that. That's people doing that. People being able to understand what's happening and, you know, we're going to change how we triage patients today. And these patients aren't as critical uh, so we're going to delay sur- delay surgery for this group of patients, but not this group. Uh, those types of things. I think it was a Stephen Hawkins that said um, intelligence is the ability of humans to adapt quickly to change. And uh, what I find in medicine is that obviously overwhelmingly it's quite a conservative field, and there's a lot of f- fear of change. For good and good, over, overwhelmingly good reasons, but one thing I find about it is also quite frustrating, and I think sometimes it can be at the downfall of um, patient care. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. It's a, it's a very it's a very conservative field, and it's conservative for good reasons because people's lives are on the line. But again, when something overwhelming happens, it has to change, and it's unable to, and as a result. Uh, I think there's a broad-based recognition that something needs to be built into the system that enables that, and that's really going to be data and research and uh, some level of intelligence, not AI, but some some level of uh, infrastructure, of analytic and kind of brain infrastructure that allows it to to shift uh, when necessary, because you know right now it isn't. Mm. How about robots? We haven't talked about robots, and I know AI is kind of linked to robots. Uh, I don't know much about robots. When I think of robots, I think of things like, uh, I don't know, Terminator. I think of those Japanese robots you might see when you're in Japan. They serve you food, that kind of thing. Um, And, you know, I think of automated factory lines that use robots to put cars together. Um, 
you know, once upon a time Henry Ford, who's, you know, pioneered car production, would, would probably would not have thought that robots one day were going to take over humans. But can you tell us more about robots? Um, probably not as much as I can about AI. Um, you know, I, th- I think, again, some robots are going to have software inside of them that allows them to do a certain task and only a certain task. Uh, and when you start talking about kind of surgical surgical robots, um, those are, are very, very early. And essentially, uh, you know, those are, are, are there to perform very, very basic tasks at the moment. Mm. Um, I think AI will be able to fuel them and, and be able to make them better. And they can have a bunch of cameras in a room and understand what's where, and that type of stuff. But uh, we're a long way away from that now. Uh, but any robot will need to have some type of way to understand in a, an environment or a set of circumstances around a, uh, a very basic problem. Uh, and in some cases that's there, in other cases it isn't. I mean, you, you could say self-driving cars are basic robots too. Mm. Yeah, so. I remember the first time I saw robotic surgery was when um, I was doing an elective term in the Netherlands and I walked into this operating theatre with a where there was a cancer surgeon operating on a woman who um, had some cancer. I can't remember if it was ovarian or endometrial, but I walked in and there was this robot operating on a patient. But the well, I'm like, where's the surgeon? And the surgeon was in a corner seated on a very comfortable stool and um, it looked like he was playing a computer game. And I thought, wow. So he's sitting in a corner whilst this robot is kind of emulating his moves. And um, I know that in Australia, I think there's, I don't, I don't do any laparoscopic surgery anymore. And I, don't, I definitely don't do robotics, but I think there's a bit of divide around what the benefits are at the moment for robotic surgery uh, that, you know, sure, it might be maybe a bit more accurate, maybe less time in hospital, but at what cost to the healthcare system, to the patient? Uh, do you know much about that? Uh, well, uh, yeah, to, to me, it's, it's as you say, to entirely an economic issue. I don't know a ton about that. Um, but the benefits of having uh, a robot do something as opposed to have it done by hand is precision, right? Mm. You know, to mm. get down to the micromillimeter. Um, now, the benefit to the patient uh, is difficult to determine. And again, the robot isn't necessarily doing that. It's receiving instructions and it's interpreting those instructions and, and then applying them. Uh, so yeah, for me, it's just, it's a question of economics is that they're going to be, I assume they're incredibly expensive. So does it actually, as you say, does it actually improve patient outcomes or does it, does it produce, uh, any, any faults in surgery as well? There, there aren't tons of those. Uh, and and I, I suspect those are those studies are happening at the moment. So with a robot, I, I think of a a physical thing like a, a a robot. You know, you can actually see it moving. Is, is there always AI behind robots? So no, I think no, the, of the, yeah, the, the the AI the, is the brain, and the robot is the physical. Is that is that a really yeah, simplified, that, dumb version? That, that's absolutely it. In in the the robotic surgery you saw, the the gentleman on the stool was almost certainly giving the the arm instructions 
Mm. And based on those instructions, the arm was carrying out a test. There was no AI behind that. Oh, okay. Uh, yep. Or there was very, very little, right? The, the, uh, it, it would have been incredibly basic. Um, you know, he would have said, right, incision here, move this back. You know, there's probably some sets of instructions there. But that's basically, it. yeah, the, the robot is the physical component. The AI is, is the intelligence or the software is the intelligence behind those movements. Those those physical movements, and and in your career, Greg, so far, um, what has been your biggest wow moment? You had a moment when you've gone, oh, that's just amazing! I'm so glad to be human. I'm proud to be human. Uh, I was in a meeting with Bill Gates once. Oh, that was cool! Wow, tell us about yeah, that. that was, oh, it was kind of a uh, uh, it was a, a group of uh, it was probably forty or fifty people, uh, and yeah, I mean, he was. It wasn't, he was there for a while. He's, it was very direct. Uh, There's no ambiguity at all in what he was thinking or feeling. Mm. Uh, so that was a bit of a wild moment. What was he talking uh, about? Oh, about Microsoft and where it was going and what we all needed to do. Well, he was pretty, pretty explicit in giving us instructions in terms of what he wanted out of us, mm. uh, which was good. Um, so the one I was at the memorial service for Steve Jobs mm. and when he died. Uh, and that was pretty interesting. So Nora Jones played and uh, Coldplay played. Wow. Is that because he uh, liked those bands and those musicians? I think so. I think that, you know, he's a bit of an iconic figure and um, they had a, a memorial service and they were in the neighborhood, rocked up and decided to play. So, yeah, those are a couple of moments that will stand out for me, uh, kind of career-wise. Uh, I was like, I can't believe I'm actually mm. actually here doing this. Yeah, I think those are probably two big ones. So what do you think it is about those two people specifically that has enabled them to do what they did? Are there any particular character, character you know, traits? Um, well, I think firstly, an incredible, in the case of Bill especially, uh, an extraordinary capacity to learn and curiosity. Mm. Um, that That's... That's that's one that that stands out. Um, an extraordinary drive, and I think timing. Mm. I think there was there was some luck there. Yeah. Um, uh, I think those are those are probably the three. And I think they're they're both very demanding, right? They they demanded that people were just as committed as they were. Mm. And which people have been your biggest inspirations, Greg? Oh, let's see. I don't know. My, my, uh, I think my grandmother is a, a pretty big inspiration. Oh, what was her name? She's, she's still, uh, her name's Lee. She lives in Maine at the moment. She's uh, pretty extraordinary. She's kind of, you know, born in, born in the 20s and 30s. And for a woman of her age, went to university and, you know, did, did a lot of things that women shouldn't do or didn't do back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and had a had a job and family and yeah she's always been a, a source of inspiration for me. She's still alive too. Yeah, she is. Yeah, she's amazing. She's still going going well. Yeah. So does she like a lobster? They're like lobster in Maine, don't they? I yeah, always hear about yeah, the lobsters yeah, in Maine. That, that's that's it. Yeah. So they live in a, a little seaside town, uh, kind of halfway up the coast of Maine, 
and yeah, there's tons of lobsters, and they're so cheap. Mm. Last time I was there, there was five dollars for a lobster. <laughs> I walked in, he said me five bucks. I said, Jesus, <laughs> take twenty of them. <laughs> so, do you miss the states? Oh, I, I miss family. Um, there are things in the in the U.S. I mean, their healthcare system. I certainly don't miss. Mm. Um, and I think some of the uh, some of the political things happening in the United States, I, I certainly don't miss at all. And yeah, I mean, I, I think Australia is a much nicer place to live. That being said, if you want to be at kind of the cutting edge of what's happening in in tech, it's a good place to be. Mm. Uh, so I, I do make a lot of trips back for for work and to see family. Mm. Um, so uh, the uh, there are things that I miss, uh, but by and large, I'm I'm happy to be where I am. I'm so astounded by things that I hear about America's healthcare system. The other day, I had a, a patient who's um who came back from five years in Silicon Valley. She works as a venture capitalist, and she said that pretty much most people would um, those people with money would use concierge healthcare. So, uh, you know, forking out a lot of money to have a particular doctor look after them and and most of those people are quite wealthy. Um, and, yeah, I'm just often shocked by the disparity in, in healthcare there and I, I just don't understand why. And um, my understanding, I'm not a political person at all, but somebody was telling me the other day that the Trump organisation uh, – ideologically, I think it was my sister, ideologically said that um, they do not believe in universal health care. Is that true? Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, without question, that is wow. that is true. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the, the cost, people people without insurance, if they get sick, I mean, there are, there are people that lose their houses. Mm. I mean, the bills are just extraordinary. Uh I mean, extraordinary. And the cost of the health system is something interesting too. And there's a lot of factors that play into that. Um, you know, and, and we, we could spend, you know, 10, 10 podcast sessions on that. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, but the health system is something I certainly uh, don't miss. And I'm, I'm certainly glad that I've chosen to make Australia my home for that. Mm. One of the, that's one of the reasons. Yeah. And how about favorite books, Greg? Um, both about your field and outside of your field. Do you have any you can share with us? Favorite books? Mm. Uh, Do you see. have time so, to read as a CEO? Yeah, of course, of course. Um, but I think, uh, I, so let's see, in terms of my work world, there's a book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things, and it's by a guy named Ben Horowitz. Uh, and that for anyone that is in a, a tech company or leading a tech company, I feel is a must read. Um, and then kind of personally, I, don't, I, I think I like some of the classics. So uh, one of my favorites is a book called Things Fall Apart by a guy named Chinua Achebe. It's Nigerian and he talks about it's kind of a, an allegory about the impact of colonialism on Africa that you could say, you know, it's the impact of, you know, colonialism on any indigenous population. I like, you know, Harper Lee, J.D. Salinger, Vonnegut, uh, so, you know, Catcher in the Rye, those types of kind of post-war American classic literature. And how about songs that make you happy? Songs that make me happy. Um, 
You know, the one that came to mind is is an 80s rock song that I loved when I was a kid in the 80s. And it's Pour Some Sugar on Me by Def Leppard. <laughs> Love it. How old were you when that song, like when you first heard that uh, song? I don't remember. Probably yeah. 10 or 11 years older. I don't know. Yeah, because they like say that. that the music that we hear in our teenage years and early adult years are the ones that kind of form our musical tastes and what we will listen to for the rest of our lives, which is why I'm still listening to Madonna and Prince and all yeah, of those 80s. Not, not, not a huge Def Leppard fan, actually, but that song, for some reason, I was, I was near seven or something, okay. just yeah, stuck out. Yeah. And your dream collaboration, do you have one or two or three? Um, yeah, I don't know that, that I have one. So dream collaboration and someone I'd like to work with. Um, you know, I'd love to work, you know, someday when I'm kind of done with the normal job thing, I'd love to do a bit of, uh, honestly, a bit of, a bit of aid work at some point. So I'd like to, to go to a developing country and try to help in some way. Uh, and I don't know if that's a collaboration or not, but I think it'd be fun to spend a a few years doing that and it could be quite a challenging environment either you know refugee or otherwise um in terms of who i would like to work with i'd love to work i'd love to spend some time with uh barack obama i find him quite inspirational uh i'd love to spend some time uh well if he was still alive i'd love to spend some time with stephen hawking just because physics has always been really interesting to me, and I haven't studied much of it, but particle physics and that type of stuff, mm -hmm. I find that thing absolutely fascinating. Like what's beyond the realms of the planet? Um, yeah, that, that stuff's absolutely fascinating. So I just like to spend uh, a day or two just listening and asking probably very stupid questions, but learning as much as I could. And how about your top tips for being um, a, a good CEO or so? If there are kids out there who want to be a CEO of a company one day, what would you advise them? For kids, um, study hard. Uh, and for adults, I would say it's all about people. Uh, it's finding people with common values, people that are passionate, people that are humble, uh, people that are curious. Uh, and people that are transparent, uh, I think those are, and people that are brave and, and have a bit of courage to to try to go out on a limb and try to do something new and different or, or otherwise. Uh, I think it's it's all about people. Thank you so much, Greg. Um, you've given me some good advice in that last bit. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so well, much for your um, your very uh, awesome words. I've learned so much from you tonight. Thank you so much. Oh, I was happy to, Tash. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Greg Miner and it's opened you up to the world of AI. Share this episode with someone if you think it will help them or inspire them. Please subscribe to the Fanny Mechanic channel and if you haven't already, hop over and give the show a fantastic rating. Shoot me a message on Instagram, Dr. Tash Fanny Mechanic and join the Fanny Mechanic podcast group on Facebook. Let me know of any topics you'd like to hear, cool people like an interview or books for us to read and share. Until next time, stay Fanny Tabulous.